0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get
2: started with our first link. First link. From Live Science. Now AI can predict when massive rogue waves will strike next, which I think is a pretty good use of that technology, right? Yeah, those are like famously hard to predict, I thought. Exactly right. But scientists trained an AI on 700 years worth of ocean data Hmm. to build an equation that can predict when these maritime monsters will strike. It's what AI should be doing. Right. Right. Now, these rogue waves, they're at least twice as high as the other waves around them. And that's the official definition from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They're super unpredictable and they can devastate ships that encounter them. Lead author Dion Hafner said, basically, it is just very bad luck when one of these giant waves hits. They are caused by a combination of many factors that until now had not been combined into a single risk estimate. So in a recent paper that was published in the journal PNAS, Hoffner and colleagues mapped the variables that create these rogue waves, and then they used AI to collate them into a single model that could determine the likelihood that a rogue wave will form. They trained a neural network using historical wave data, which then generated a system which learned the causes of rogue waves all by itself Mm -hmm. and could work to predict when and where one might occur. But scientists couldn't tell how the AI figured this out. So in order to try to do so, Hoffner's team applied symbolic regression. This is basically just another form of machine learning. And what it does is it produced an equation helping the researchers understand how the AI reached its prediction. And according to that analysis, it demonstrated that abnormal waves occur all of the time. And they do cause problems. Only last year, a deadly rogue wave smashed into a cruise ship near Antarctica. It killed one person and injured four others. Wow! But this new equation effectively shows the recipe for a rogue wave. So now, hopefully, we should be able to better protect passenger and cargo ships for a licensing fee, I'm sure, Oh to predict when and where the perfect cocktail of factors might arise and plan the route around it.
0: So this is something that they can use on a ship in real time. They can sit there and say, yeah. we know the atmospheric pressure. We somehow know what the waves are doing underneath the surface of the ocean. And it can tell us what's the odds of a rogue wave hitting us.
2: That's pretty much it. Yeah. Huh. It's a risk estimate so that they're able to be like, hmm, rogue wave potential a little bit more than we want. Let's just kind of go around it if we can. Yeah. It's still not going
0: to say like, here, it's coming at you from this direction. Right. It's
2: just like, ah, your odds are bad today. Don't go out. Exactly. You're still going to need that person up in the crow's nest or whatever it is going, ah, iceberg ahead to right. make sure that are <laughs> right. <in> the right <laughs> Combination of human oversight because historically that's worked really well when we saw the you iceberg know, ahead of us <laughs> if only they had ai if only
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: next link next, next link. link this
1: article comes to us from cnn.com it's titled leaning tower in italy on high alert for collapse Oh, yeah. And before you ask, it is not the Leaning Tower of Pisa.
0: They have more what? than one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, they built a lot of towers around yeah, that time yeah, yeah. and they didn't quite figure some of the foundational pieces out <laughs> literally for a couple of those towers. But hey, they have lasted for like a thousand years. So it's still quite impressive.
0: Yeah, they haven't fallen yet. So yeah.
1: <laughs> And so it's the leaning tower that has stood tipsily but steadily for nearly 1,000 years, but now the days of the Garrisenda Tower in Bologna, Italy could be numbered. Following investigations last month, the city is instigating a civil protection plan for the sudden and unexpected collapse of the tower, which has dominated the Bologna skyline since the 12th century. A protective metal cordon will be erected to contain debris resulting from a possible collapse to reduce the vulnerability of surrounding buildings as well as blocking access to the off-limits area. The cordon will be fixed into the ground and will include specially designed rockfall protection nets also made of metal and also anchored to the ground. Hmm. Yikes. Yeah, it's pretty intense. They're like, yeah, this thing is coming down. So monitoring of the site over the past month has revealed an unexpected and accelerated trend of crushing compression to the base of the tower with gradual disintegration of the stone used to clad the base and cracks expanding in the brick above. Mm. Consolidation works which were already underway have been halted and an exclusion zone is to be built in the fastest time possible. However, the tower isn't on the verge of immediate collapse, a spokesman told CNN, which is good. You know, it's not like you can literally (laughs) just see it (laughs) moving. And he says, we're acting as if it's the worst case scenario, but that's not to say it'll happen. It could be three months, 10 years, or 20 years. If there was an imminent risk of a collapse, we'd evacuate everyone, he said, adding that the monitoring equipment delivers readings every 15 minutes, meaning that they should get warning of a collapse and can evacuate the surrounding area. So... One of Bologna's famous twin towers, the 48-meter Garisenda, was built in the 12th century when Bologna was a mini-Manhattan with dozens of towers reaching toward the sky, each built by local families trying to construct theirs higher than the last. <laughs> Today, few remain. Of those that do, many have had their tops lopped off and been converted into regular houses. The Garisenda leans at an angle of 4 degrees, only a little more upright than the Leaning Tower of Pisa's 5 degrees. It was already leaning by the early 14th century when Dante wrote Inferno, in which he described the dizzy rush of looking up at the Garisenda's leaning side. Hmm. Shortened in later years, it sits in the city center besides Asinelli, a tower twice the height which tourists could climb until last month. Bologna's mayor, Matteo Lepore, ordered the area around the towers to be blocked off in October, although the move to isolate them was for research reasons rather than safety ones. Acoustic sensors were placed around the Gary senda to monitor cracking and creaking noises, while a pendulum was installed in both towers to track movement and see if regular oscillation was going above a certain threshold. That research has now found not only increased compression in the base of the tower, but that the lean of the tower has started to shift 90 degrees from an easterly or southeasterly direction to southwards, huh. which mm. I did not know could happen with a leaning tower like I didn't know. 90 it just, degrees yeah, is significant, just like, you know, <laughs> imagining it rotate on a pivot.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm imagining like those guys who cut down really tall trees. It's like it starts to lean in one direction, but you never know. Like it could suddenly go and hit the house next to you instead.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the photos are pretty wild in this article because you think five degrees or four degrees even. That's not that much. But when it's on a tower Mm -hmm. that's 160 feet (laughs) tall, it really looks like it is just straight up slumped over. Mm.
2: Yeah.
1: But anyone who is hoping that the cordon would fit in with the medieval buildings around it will be disappointed by the renderings, which show bright red barriers around the Garrisenda. But hopefully, it's only temporary. The report stipulates that any anti-collapse measures must be reversible. The Hmm. council spokesperson said that once the cordon has been installed, new research will be undertaken in two phases. First to find a solution to stabilize the tower and then to resolve the underlying problem. He said that the first phase might mean creating a metal cage for the structure, but the second phase is causing more debate. Some say, let's dismantle it, redo the base, and rebuild it, he says. Others say, let's trim it, the tower itself, as was done in the medieval period. And these are all hypotheses that we're studying. The tower is nearly 1,000 years old, and there's no rule book. Mm. The works won't come cheap. The coordinate alone will cost 4.4 million euros, or about 4.8 million dollars. Wow. And any stabilizing work will cost millions and millions. The council Ooh. has set up an online fundraiser with the aim of raising 3 million euros, and it has already raised 800,000 euros in a week. Huh. The spokesperson says this isn't just about saving a heritage site. It also has a very strong symbolic value.
0: I hope they got cameras on that thing 24 hours a day. Because you're gonna be real sad if it falls in the night and you didn't watch it. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, I imagine they have to have cameras along with all those other sensors. Yeah, I, mean, I hope.
2: I mean, it deserves its own Twitch channel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they should live stream it. Just yeah. completely right? live stream the
0: cameras and have people take bets on when it's gonna fall, like those people do with right? ice.
2: They should. Yeah, talk I about. mean, you know, it's gonna cost a lot. Might as well start the fundraising now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next,
1: Next link. link.
3: Okay, this comes from The Conversation. Almost half the men surveyed think they could land a passenger plane. Experts disagree.
0: Yeah, experts and me. I mean, come on. (laughs) Like, what? All right,
3: picture this. You're nestled comfortably in your seat, cruising towards your holiday destination when a flight attendant voice breaks through the silence. Ladies and gentlemen, both pilots are incapacitated. Are there any passengers who could (laughs) land the plane? (laughs) (laughs) If you think you can manage it, you're not alone. Survey results published in January indicate about one third of adult Americans think they could safely land a passenger aircraft what? with air traffic control assistance. <laughs> and among male respondents, oh. the confidence level rose to nearly fifty percent.
2: Wow.
3: Uh-huh. Though honestly, I-, I thought it'd be higher than that. Yeah. This article piqued my special interest. I've been flying with my dad since I was about six months old. Mm. Obviously I wasn't flying then, but I've been right, right, right seat flying with him since maybe five or six. And I don't have my pilot's license, but I've accrued hundreds of hours of flying. And as much as it pains me to say it, I could not land a random commercial plane. Mm-hmm. I could get it to the ground, sure. Y'all can do that. <laughs> it's the everybody getting out of the plane part. Right, right, right. But what about a person with no prior training? Can they simply guide everyone to a smooth touchdown? No. Absolutely
0: not. <laughs> yeah, not remotely. Yeah. <laughs>
3: the Dunning Kruger effect strikes yet again, right? Sure, there are stories of people with no experience landing a plane after the pilot has become unresponsive. For instance, last year, Darren Harrison managed to land a twin engine aircraft in Florida with guidance of an air traffic controller who also happened to be a flight instructor. However, such incidents only take place in small, simple aircraft. Mm-hmm. Flying a much bigger, heavier, and more complex commercial jet is a totally different game. Mm-hmm. You may have also heard, because I've heard it, oh, planes these days, they can land themselves. And that's not really true. they get you close, but there still needs to be a human involved. In the article, the author states a pilot spends about 90% of their time monitoring autopilot systems and making sure everything is working as intended. And the other 10% is spent managing problems, taxing, taking off and landing. I put it more in like 60 to 70 percent.
0: Well, and that's all the part where you're in the air. The landing
3: is the dangerous
0: part. That's the part where you need to be paying attention.
3: Mm -hmm. And the takeoffs. The takeoffs are pretty sketched, too. There's a lot of things to keep in play. Mm. But you're right. The landing is even more complicated and scary. To land successfully, a pilot must keep an appropriate speed while simultaneously managing gear, flap configuration, adhering to air traffic control regulations, communicating with air traffic control. Then once the aircraft comes close to the runway, they must accurately judge its height, reduce power, and adjust the rate of descent, ensuring they land on the correct area of the runway. They left out a few things in the article too, like finding the airport. Right, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> What's the visibility like? What is a proper descent rate? And then once on the ground, they'll use the brakes and reverse thrust to bring the aircraft to a complete stop before the runway ends. This all happens within a few minutes. They do include a video of a Boeing landing in heavy crosswind from the POV of the pilot, and you can see just how much work is being done. So, someone with no flying experience (laughs) would definitely mess up at least one of those things. Mm -hmm. And because they're so complex and there's no margin of error, The journey to become a commercial pilot is a long one.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Even before stepping in the cockpit, you have to study aerodynamics, meteorology, radio, navigation, aircraft systems, performance and flight planning. Then it takes many hours with the instructor before they're allowed to fly solo. Many more hours are needed before they're allowed to be in a plane with other people. And last, you must get trained on all the specific airplanes that you are going to be able to fly. You can't just jump into any plane like a car. Mm -hmm. On top of that, pilots also spend a lot of time training. They must do simulator training regularly to keep their license to fly particular planes. Now, this is the part of the article where I disagree with the author. He talks about flight simulators like Microsoft Flight Sim or X-Plane. He says that even if you get the games, you wouldn't be able to land the plane. And that's where I disagree. I don't think he's played these games recently in a VR rig. Mm. I let my dad play another one of my flight sims and he was blown away. And real pilots actually play these games now. And the only real differences are there's no real G-forces and nobody dies. Right. So that's that's (laughs) the good news. Right. So maybe they needed to ask all the people that thought they could land the plane. How many of you have flight sim rigs in your house?
0: (laughs) Because it may
3: have skewed the results a little. Maybe. So, if you were already a little afraid of flying, this story probably didn't help. <laughs> but they also don't mention this in the article. It has never happened, not once in a commercial flight. Mm-hmm. There are two competent pilots, and all you Zucker Brother fans will be happy to hear that the pilots are required to eat different meals.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice
3: uh so yeah no you can't land a plane it's just too many variables
0: well and like you said the little planes are vastly simpler than a commercial Mm -hmm. plane i mean there's no no comparison to land a little cessna maybe they could not a commercial Mm -hmm. jet no way
3: Mm -mm. and again fortunately it's never even come up like we've we've planned for that to not happen (laughs) so you will never be asked to come up and fly the plane
0: Well, that's why they feel confident saying they could, because they know they're never going to be put to the (laughs) test.
1: Yeah, I could do it. I I mean, this is exactly like men, mostly men, thinking that they could actually fight a bear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I could land a plane while fighting a bear. I could have a bear as a (laughs) (laughs) co-pilot.
3: All right. On that note, next link.
0: Next Next link. link. All right. Well, we're going to get into some deep investigative journalism here (gasps) with this next one from (sighs) Wired. It's called. Was Bobie the world's oldest dog or a fraud?
2: <gasps> no. no, not Bobie.
0: Oh, you know Bobie. All
2: right. I yeah. Bobie. He got to be, what, like 30-something in human years?
3: Yeah. Mm, yeah, maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so on October 21st of this year, Bobie the dog died at the purported age of 31 years, which, the author helpfully does the math for us, is equivalent to 217 in human years. And Bobie's death apparently generated a fair amount of publicity because Bobie was registered with Guinness World Records as not just the oldest dog alive, but the oldest dog ever. A title that Bobie was officially granted back in February when he took it from the previous record holder, Spike the Chihuahua. And Spike actually hadn't held onto it for very long. He had only been announced three months earlier, in December of 2022, as being a paltry 23 years old. And it was because of the publicity surrounding Spike that Bobby's owners reached out to Guinness just two weeks later. And I guess at the time no one questioned it, but less than a week after the recent announcement of Boby's death on the Guinness World Records blog, The Guardian published a rather skeptical article questioning whether Boby had actually been as old as his owners said he was. One veterinarian told The Guardian, quote, not a single one of my veterinary colleagues believe Bobi was actually 31 <gasps> years old. For the Guinness Book of Records to maintain their credibility and authority in the eyes of the veterinary profession, they really need to publish some irrefutable evidence. <laughs> so Matt Reynolds, the author of this Wired article, decided it was up to him to really dig into this. And he's very self-aware through the whole thing, noting that people might expect him to cover more serious subjects, but they really shouldn't, because he once enlisted a crew of stamp collectors to track down a package of fraudulent false teeth sent to the suburbs of Manchester, which is a whole separate adventure that is linked in the article, and I highly recommend it. <laughs> but we're talking about Bobby here. So Reynolds started tracking down what we do know. Bobby was, according to Guinness, a purebred raffero do alentejo which is a Portuguese breed of livestock herding dog with an average life expectancy of 12 to 14 years. And this was one of the first things that people picked up on, right, is that long-living dogs are almost always small breeds, and Bobi mm. was a big breed. Plus, mm. mutts tend to live longer than purebreds. But Bobi's owners say that for whatever reason, his whole genetic line has been strong in this department because Bobi's mother lived to the age of 18, while another of the family's dogs died at the age of 22. It's also pretty well established that long-lived dogs tend to be free-roaming and have lots of contact with different humans, and Bobi's family says that exactly describes how the many dogs on their property live. So Reynolds asked Guinness how they verified Bobby's age, and they said they confirmed it with an organization called SIAC, S-I-A-C, which is a Portuguese government database for the registration of cats, dogs, and weirdly, ferrets. But... <laughs> SIAC told Reynolds that they don't actually do any verification. The information they have is literally just whatever the owners told them. Uh, On the other uh, hand, Bobby was registered with them back in July of 2022, which is several months before Spike was announced. So you might look at that as evidence that Boby's owners were just doing their thing and had no reason to lie about it. Or you might look at it as them establishing a paper trail before they made their move, because why uh, would you suddenly register your dog at the age of 30? <laughs>
3: So wait, wait, hold on. The the dog wasn't registered at all as a puppy or anything. That was the first time they. Okay, yeah, that is sus.
0: Yes, it's very sus. (laughs) Eniko Kubinyi, an expert in dog longevity at Eotvos Lorand University in Hungary, says that accurately aging dogs is extremely difficult. One of the problems she regularly encounters is that often a dog will die at home and the owners never bother to notify the vet. So if you just go by paperwork, there are mm. tons of animals in the system that are listed at 40 years old or more. And Bobby's family was like, OK, have some photos of Boby from when he was much younger. And immediately a ton of people were like, that's not the same dog. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the older photos clearly seem to show a dog with red fur, while more recent photos of Bobby have a distinctly brown fur color. Well, well you go gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your, your coat color can change for sure. Uh-huh. So Reynolds reached out to Sheila Schmutz, an emeritus professor of animal and poultry science at the University of Saskatchewan, for an expert opinion. She said, quote, it is true that I am considered an expert on dog coat color, at least in terms of genetics. Mm. She said she and her husband both looked at the photos and they can see the argument for both sides, but couldn't really offer an opinion. She was pretty much like, why are you bothering me with this? (laughs) But Reynolds was not giving up. So he reached out to another expert, Karen Becker, a veterinarian and author of a book on how to help your dog live longer. Unfortunately, Becker was away on a lecture tour, but Becker's assistant wrote back saying that they did believe that Bobby was 31 years old and that both Guinness and The Guardian had gotten tons of details wrong. For hmm. one thing, Bobby's owners have always said he was a mutt, not a purebred. And while The Guardian had said that Bobby ate a raw food diet, Bobby's owner specifically attributed part of his longevity to the fact that he ate cooked, homemade human food. But the most damning fact, the assistant wrote, was that, quote, the lobby organization waited until the poor little guy's cremation day to raise questions to Guinness about additional testing. And Reynolds was like, hold up, lobbying? What kind of conspiracy do you think is going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Lobbying. And apparently, there is a sort of vocal subset of dog owners who think that commercial dog food is unhealthy and that all dogs would live much longer if they were fed proper human food. Hmm. Bobby's owners definitely fall into this category. And Becker's assistant believes that big dog food corporations are trying to tear down Bobby's credibility because <gasps> they don't want people to stop buying their products.
2: Oh, my gosh. Oy.
0: She said, quote, Those of us in the pet space know it never goes well when you threaten a multi-billion dollar empire. (laughs) (laughs) Reynolds did ask the top three pet food brands whether they were involved in a conspiracy to undermine the world's oldest dog. But Mars and Nestle did not respond, while Hill's Pet Nutrition wrote back only that they had no involvement in this effort.
3: (laughs) They wrote back. (laughs) Excellent.
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, Bobby's owner also did not respond to Reynolds' inquiries. They're apparently just sick of all of this. And he says, you know what, if we want to go down the conspiracy route, you also have to wonder whether this is really just an effort by Spike the Chihuahua's owners to reclaim their title. Right? There's no way to know. (laughs) So he's pointing fingers in every direction. I clearly, you know, he's having fun with it. I don't know that this is a serious inquiry in any regard on either side. But I don't know. I can't say whether I think Bobby is old. They have photos of him and I mm, he doesn't look that old. I got to say he looks like an
3: older dog. But do you get a cash prize?
0: I think you have to pay Guinness.
3: You actually had to pay. I think
0: so. I think you have to basically say it's like an application fee or something. But like otherwise Hmm. they don't make money. Like this whole Hmm. process is like you come to them for the notoriety.
3: There was another article that I'm not sure anyone was getting to that was in the reading about a new methods for increasing the lifespan of big dogs.
2: Oh, really? yeah, a new drug. FDA mm. just approved it. Well, are you doing that one or no?
3: No. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just wanted to mention that there is more on that topic.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's either a lot of homemade food or a quick drug. I know what most people are going to choose. Like...
2: <laughs> <laughs> Next link.
0: Next, Next link. link!
2: All right, it's time for us to take a sojourn via sciencealert.com into space. Because, boy, when you take a spacewalk, horrific things happen to your body. And let's huh. get into it. <laughs> all right. First of all, there's bone and muscle density loss. Some of us are a little familiar with that, right? But mm-hmm. what about the vision problems from too much fluid in the brain? Huh. Apparently, mm-hmm. without gravity, bodily wetness is free to just float around inside (laughs) willy-nilly that also creates problems with urination it turns out Gravity is pretty essential to our sense of when we need to pee. Mm. And not often covered, there's possible erectile dysfunction. In the article, it says it's not for the reason you think. Spoiler alert, it's radiation. But, oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> That's because way worse. space is full of radiation. And a surprising number of astronauts' fingernails just fell off.
3: Oh. <gasps> Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, it's gross.
2: And the problem seems to have a lot more to do with atmospheric pressure than mm. gravity. So in order to be as safe as possible while performing EVAs, an astronaut's spacesuit needs to be pressurized. So far, so good. We've done this. But when it comes to the hands, this becomes a problem. Hmm. A team led by epidemiologist Jacqueline Charvat of Weill Laboratories said, Injuries to the hands are common among astronauts who train for EVA. When the gloves are pressurized, they restrict movement and they create pressure points during tasks. Glove injuries, both anecdotal and recorded, have been reported during EVA training and flight persistently through NASA's history, regardless of mission, regardless of glove model. And if you are taking a spacewalk, sometimes that's a whole day. The longest ever recorded was 8 hours and 56 minutes. That's a long time to be wearing gloves that can cause and exacerbate hand injuries. Yeah. Well,
3: when they're doing spacewalks, they're not just like chilling out there. They're usually working with their hands. Correct. <laughs>
2: exactly right. If you're performing manual tasks outside the space station that can't be done anyway, you kind of need those hands. And frankly, a lot of thought has been given to this problem. And figuring out what exactly causes the problem has been surprisingly difficult. In 2010, a team of researchers studied 232 hand injuries reported by astronauts, and they found a significant correlation between the width and circumference of astronauts' metacarpophalangeal joints. So those Mm. are the knuckles at the very top of your fist, where your palm and your fingers meet. And the study suggested that spacesuit gloves limit the mobility of these knuckles in particular, which then places more pressure on the fingers, mm. resulting in reduced blood flow, tissue damage, bam, no fingernails. So to try to narrow down the risk factors associated with this fingernail loss, a team led by engineer Christopher Reed, formerly of Lockheed Martin, studied these types of injuries in astronauts. The study examined 31 onycholysis injuries. And what they found is, yeah, the design of the glove did play a pretty significant role. Between the two glove types in their study, one was associated with 8.5 times the risk of fingernail loss, and most of the injuries occurred to the middle finger. Glove sizing and middle finger length obviously played a role. They found that this injury seemed more likely in women than men. But Finally, we may have a solution in sight with these new Artemis era spacesuits looming on the horizon. So, hmm. fingers crossed that <laughs> that's one less thing they need to be worried about.
3: Right. <laughs> I'm wondering if there's any sort of mechanical mechanism that'll help the glove. Expand or shrink, you know, mm-hmm. if we put some kind of pulley system on the outsides that read when I'm trying to make a fist. And then it helps I mean, me make a yeah, fist.
2: it seems clear they need to be talking to puppeteers, right? right? Yeah. A full exoskeleton. Oh, let's go to mech suits. Finally. Yeah, it's Ooh. about time. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've just been waiting for the excuse.
2: Yes, that's right. right. No more fallen fingernails. Our mech future is now. <laughs> 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 Next link
1: next Next link link. this article comes to us from scitechdaily.com and it's titled baffling experts for years scientists finally solve radioactive wild boar paradox Oh, okay. It's like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Except they do not fight crime. They just fight everything. Um, (laughs) 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 So decades following the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, wild boar meat continues to exhibit unexpectedly high levels of radioactivity. Post-accident, high radioactive contamination led to advisories against consuming mushrooms and affected wild game meat for years. Over time, the radioactivity in deer and roe deer meat diminished as expected, but wild boar meat continued to show unexpectedly high radioactivity levels exceeding safety limits in some cases even today. (laughs) This persistent anomaly known as the wild boar paradox baffled experts for years. However, recent studies detailed by T.U. Wien of Vienna and the Leibniz University of Hanover have uncovered an explanation. It is a late aftermath of the nuclear weapons tests from the 1960s.
0: (laughs) It's not even Chernobyl. It's just we did it to him again. Like, yeah,
1: (laughs) this is on us. So Professor George Steinhauser of T.U. Wien says, The most important element for the radioactivity of the samples is cesium-137 with a half-life of about 30 years. Hence, after 30 years, half of the material has decayed all by itself. Radiation exposure to food, however, usually declines much faster. After all, the cesium has dispersed since Chernobyl, was washed out by rainwater, bound to minerals, or perhaps migrated deep into the soil so it is no longer absorbed by plants and animals in the same quantities as it was immediately after the reactor accident. Thus, after one half-life, most food samples exhibit not simply just half the original activity concentration, but much less. In the case of wild boar meat, however, things are different. There, the radiation levels have remained almost constant, a result that at first glance seems completely contradictory from a physical point of view. By making new, more precise measurements, they wanted to determine not only the amount, but also the origin of the radioactivity. This is possible because different sources of radioactive isotopes have different physical fingerprints. For example, they do not only release cesium-137, but also cesium-135, a cesium isotope with a much longer half-life. The ratio of the two types of cesium is not always the same. The results showed that while a total of about 90% of the cesium-137 in Central Europe comes from Chernobyl, a large proportion of the cesium in wild boar meat is attributable to nuclear weapons testing, up to 68% in some samples. And the reason for this lies in the very special food preferences of wild boars. They particularly like to dig up deer truffles from the ground.
3: Yeah, they dig. So they're digging up all that stuff.
1: Basically, yeah. The radioactive cesium accumulates in these subterranean mushrooms with a long time delay. The cesium migrates downwards through the soil very slowly, sometimes only about one millimeter per year, mm. and deer truffles, which can be found at depths of twenty to forty centimeters, are thus only now absorbing the cesium that was released in Chernobyl. Wow. The cesium from the old nuclear weapons tests, on the other hand, has already arrived there some time ago. Mm. Thus the contamination of wild boar meat is also not expected to decrease significantly in the next few years because some of the cesium from Chernobyl is only now being incorporated into the truffles.
0: I mean, I guess it's good that the boar basically has no predators other than humans. So there's not like a bigger animal that is eating them and getting their radiation. It doesn't just travel up the food chain. No, it's just just our karmic delivery. Yeah, yeah. If if you're going to eat wild boar, you're going to feel the sins of your fathers. (laughs) 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 Yeah.
3: Next link. Next Next link. link. This comes from New Atlas. Scientists can tell where you're looking by listening to your ears.
2: Oh, what? Okay. I, know. I know.
3: Back in twenty eighteen. Oh, remember twenty oh, yeah. eighteen? <laughs> Summer days. <laughs> scientists at Duke University discovered that each time our eyes move, our ears make an imperceptible squeaking noise. Oh. Now the researchers have developed a method for telling where a person is looking by analyzing these sounds.
0: What? I mean I guess it's all like those inner muscles, you know, your eye muscles yep. are moving and it sort of tugs on things inside your skull.
3: That's exactly right. And although we can't hear the noises, they can be picked up by a mic if you place okay. it in the ear. <gasps> Does
2: that mean dogs can hear our eyes swiveling?
3: Maybe. Maybe. Oh, oh, my yeah. God. Oh. Lead scientist, Professor Jennifer Groh, believes that they may occur as eye movements trigger the brain to contract either the middle ear muscles or the hair cells. Doing the former helps dampen loud noises, while doing the latter amplifies quiet ones.
0: Oh. This
3: arrangement could help us make sense of our surroundings by automatically adjusting the sensitivity of our hearing based upon what we're looking at. In a recent experiment, Gross' team and Professor Christopher Shera from the University of Southern California recruited 16 adults, all with good vision and hearing, to take a simple test. The volunteers started by visually tracking the movements of a green dot on a computer screen without moving their heads. As they did so, an eye-tracking camera recorded the direction of their gaze, while microphones in their ear canal recorded their ear sounds. When the eye video and ear audio recordings were subsequently cross-referenced, it was found that eye movements in a specific direction produced specific types of ear noises scientists were thus able to tell where a participant's gaze was focused simply by identifying what sort of noise, quote, signatures their ears were making. So why do we do this? It's hoped. Yeah, it's hoped that the team's finding will contribute to a better understanding of human perception, possibly leading to a more accurate and informative hearing test. Hmm. I'm sure what will happen is that this discovery will unlock something else in another field.
0: Sure. Yeah. It's always you never know what the building blocks are going to lead to. But it does seem a mm-hmm. little silly to be like, well, I stuck microphones in your ears and now I know what direction you were looking like. You could also just look at me and know what direction <laughs> right, I was looking. <laughs> like...
3: But it may have a practical usage for yeah. cyborgs in the near future.
2: Or magicians.
3: <laughs> there, there's a video at the bottom of the article that lets you hear the sounds. They've either turned them up or made them into an audible fuzz sound that happens mm. in short bursts every time your eye moves. It's kind of like a
0: Hmm. I mean, I definitely I believe it. I have really big Eustachian tubes and every time I swallow I can hear it in my ears. Whoa. But that's Ooh. unusual. Yeah, you're not you're not supposed to be like that. I just have, according to an ENT, a professional opinion, the biggest eustachian tubes he's ever seen. So
1: wow, I didn't realize I was in the presence of
3: royalty.
2: Yeah, I know, right? right? We got to talk to Guinness, man.
3: <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah, we're going to get Guinness for that one.
2: Exactly.
3: <laughs> Otherwise, I don't believe you.
2: That's true. Well, listen,
0: I could be lying. They're just going to verify it with paperwork, and you can't trust paperwork, man. Yes, yeah, <laughs> no. no, no. <laughs> All right, well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include exactly how much life is on Earth, brittle stars can learn just fine even without a brain, and one identical twin went vegan while the other didn't. See what happened. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper
3: Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.